This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you very much for joining. An honor, a privilege, a pleasure as always to have you here with me. Uh, The rundown today, the sort of schedule for the show I had in my mind is being upended by events. Uh, Both the advantage and disadvantage of having a noon show is... You've got the sort of morning and then, you know, the, the morning news dump and then more stuff comes in and then things happen. Things happen around the world. Most, uh, most pointedly for right now um, is the Russian ambassador to Turkey has been injured in an apparent assassination attempt. Uh, this was at a, an art gallery opening in Turkey. Russia's ambassador to Turkey was shot by a gunman who said in Turkish, according to people who were there, quote, we die in Aleppo, you die here. And then he uh, opened fire. He shot the ambassador, Andrei Karlov, and hit at least three others. Karlov was in critical condition. Uh, he was giving a speech at an art gallery in Ankara, the capital of Turkey. And uh, the attacker fired a shot into the air um, as the ambassador was speaking and then shot him at least one time. Um, there are some pretty chilling photos because people, obviously, this was a photo op situation. He's speaking at an art gallery in the capital of Turkey, the Russian ambassador. Uh, you can see them. Uh, he was speaking, and there were some photos of this that were shared on social media. Uh, and, yeah, Russian Russian ambassador is, as we see here, uh, he was fine. And then out of nowhere, this happened, this gunman. Uh, this apparent terrorist, right? We we think of terrorism now in a certain context. The assassination of an ambassador for political reasons is pretty clearly a form of terrorism, whether this is jihadist terrorism or um, just a sort of more old-school anti-Russian, you know, Arab nationalist kind of terrorism. I mean, it's probably jihadist, but, you know, we're not really sure exactly what's going on here. The guy didn't yell Allahu Akbar, from what I understand. It wasn't a suicide bombing. It was a shooting. Uh, uh, so it's unclear, according to the Mirror here, UK paper, whether the gunman had even been detained. Now, this is, of course, anytime there's a art gallery opening and an ambassador is there and he's shot, it's surprising. This isn't something that happens often at all. And it's uh, why it's now a major international news story. Um, but... And I think it'll be catching on more too. I think it just it just broke in the last few hours, from what I understand. I guess it's uh, it's what is it? It's nighttime. I'm, I always get my timing wrong there. Uh, it might have been last night. I'll check on that. Uh, but 
as we see here. Uh, no, yeah, it would have been. They're ahead of us, so it's night, nighttime, um, nighttime their time. Aleppo is a disaster. Um, Aleppo is now a city that, if you look online, you can see the ruins of it. And I, I think, and this is tragic, and I don't mean to be the kind of person that points at everything that's going on in the world that's bad and says, see, look at President Obama's crappy policy. That's why all these people are dying. Look at look at the failures of the Obama administration. That's why this is happening. But I, I do think it is a somewhat a, a tragic but fitting tribute to the Obama administration and its policy of uh, doing the minimum and thinking itself genius for that approach, right? Just do very, very little. In fact, pull the U.S. back a bit, do less than other administrations would have done. And whenever you're challenged on this, all you do is you turn around and say, well, at least I'm not George Bush. At least we haven't invaded. There aren't 150,000 plus U.S. troops on the ground. And that became a sort of catch-all excuse for the administration for its very, uh, what's the best word, Uh, a foreign policy that seemed as driven by the 24-hour cable news cycle, public opinion polls, and the sort of whims of Obama and his senior officials as anything else. You know, the Obama doctrine is speak a lot, do a little, and sometimes tell the U.S. to do even less. I, I don't think there's really much of an expansion you could make of it beyond that. It's tell the U.S., uh, tell use our forces less, pull them back, uh, be more multilateral, try to build international consensus. I mean, international consensus is two things. One, a myth, and two, useless. Always remember that. Very rarely does international consensus on a difficult issue exist, meaning that there can be a majority that believes something. But as we see from the Syria situation, Russia, which has a permanent seat on the U.N. Security Council, they don't see Syria the way we do. So by no means can we say that there is an international consensus on that. China doesn't see Syria the same way that we do. I mean, you look at some of the most important countries in the world from a security perspective, we don't have consensus. Yeah, I and mean, maybe we have consensus on the sort of vague, general things like, you know, we should all be nice to each other and there should be international human rights or something. But you know, try holding a regime to account with that. Try waving around a piece of paper in the air with that written on it. Good luck. So the consensus, international consensus is largely a myth. And I think more importantly, and we see this in Syria, it's also, even if it weren't a myth, often useless. What's happening in Syria is terrible. What's happened to the Syrian people, 500,000 dead. It's a lot of people dead. Never mind the fact that half the country has been displaced from its homes. I mean, Syria is in the midst of uh, complete destruction as a country. It really no longer is a country, and its people are suffering horrifically. And what has the Obama administration done? We are the sole superpower. There are other powers that have taken a much more active role, notably Russia and Iran, than we have. What has Obama really done to alleviate the suffering of the Syrian people? What grand strategy has he put together? It's not like we're holding him to account on this and it's only been a year, six months. This thing's been going on now for almost five years. What policy has he put in place? You will recall that John Kerry and President Obama did a victory lap because they managed to get at least ostensibly the removal of chemical weapons from Syria. Didn't stop the carnage, didn't stop the bloodshed. 
and people that are dying because their homes are falling in on them because of barrel bombs or young children who are ripped apart by shrapnel from those barrel bombs, it doesn't change their minds, their opinions. It doesn't bring them back to life. It doesn't give them back their limbs that the Obama administration created some sort of a deal to remove certain chemical weapons from Syria. And, oh, by the way, as we know, chemical weapons have been used in Syria dozens of times, dozens of times, and we have done nothing against the regime, and we have no real policy in place to help the people that are most directly affected by this. I mean, the bus, the buses, literally lines of buses trying to get out of Aleppo, uh, an enclave in eastern Aleppo, where they believe 50 to 100,000 people are stuck and face annihilation at the hands of the Assad goons who are coming, and Russians, by the way. I mean, there are reports of IRGC senior officers, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, Iranians who are in Aleppo. There are reports of Russian special forces units. In fact, some have even said they're the same. It's the same storied uh, unit that the Russians use for the taking of Crimea. They're in Aleppo right now, and, and you can say that, well, is this really our problem? And I think that's often been Obama's fallback, right? On the one hand, he'll go to fancy dinners in front of lots of heads of state, movers and shakers, people that can write large checks for a whole variety of things, and talk about our commitment to international affairs, international human rights and human dignity. Never again. I do believe Obama gave a speech, in fact, in D.C. at the Holocaust Museum, which if you have not been to, I highly recommend you go to. It is a difficult thing. It is also a very worthwhile thing. I've been. I went on one of my days off from the CIA. I spent the day there. Um, I believe he gave a speech there in which he said, you know, never again. That is the cry. We will not allow this, the rallying cry. We will not allow this sort of thing to happen. Well, once you're getting into 500,000 people killed in a civil war where they are stuck between fanatic jihadists on one side and a bloodthirsty tyrant on the other, you'd think that the U.N. Security Council, I mean, we, we have we have an apparatus in place. We have mechanisms that are supposed to work to stop this sort of thing. We have diplomats. We have negotiated. We, all of it largely worthless. Aleppo is falling back to the regime. The suffering is enormous and catastrophic. And what does President Obama, what, what do the senior most officials of the government right now offer? Largely silence, preparation for Obama's vacation. He's done. He's going to be handing the reins over to Trump soon. They don't want to make too big a deal of this. They don't want it to be clear that the single biggest foreign policy challenge of Obama's time in office, Syria, has also been the most obvious and catastrophic failure of the Obama years. There are other failures, too, but this one is just how much worse could it be? How much more horrific and hopeless could it be? And this is what then brings me back to this assassination attempt on a Russian ambassador. These sorts of things have long-term consequences, the sorts of consequences that pull us into things. I don't just mean our military, that affect us and our friends and our interests around the world. I've said to you before that the closest approximation to what's happening in Syria right now is most likely, if you're going to take a historical perspective, the Lebanese Civil War from 1975 to 1990. I spent a summer studying with another, a number of Lebanese students who were about my age, some of them are a little older, who told me about what that was like, what it was like to live in Beirut during that, and how the country was, was ravaged 
and pulled apart. And from that civil war, we also saw the monster of Hezbollah uh, come to be, which still uh, bedevils Israel and our interests uh, in the Middle East and around the world. we, We have seen this now for decades the uh, the echoes of what happened in Lebanon still affect us. Never mind, of course, bring into bring into uh, the discussion as we should uh, the bombing of the Marine barracks and the recognition of the kind of extremism and terrorism we faced, the sort of nihilistic sadism we faced in the Middle East against the jihadists. We got our among our first tastes of that, and certainly in terms of casualties, our first mass casualty incident in the civil war in Lebanon, in Beirut. So Syria is that on a larger scale with more international actors deeply enmeshed in it. And the, excuse me, the body count will be higher, I think. And it could go on just as long. And the Obama administration offers what? The attempt to assassinate a Russian ambassador, I think you can also... Uh, see this as a harbinger of things to come. There will be uh, major jihadist attacks on the Russian homeland. And that Aleppo is going to be a rallying cry for Sunni jihadists all across the region who say, see, if you are part of the moderate opposition, if you were just opposed to Assad, you are lambs to the slaughter. Why don't you join us? Why don't you join ISIS or Al-Qaeda or some derivation thereof? We actually fight. We do what is necessary. To us, it sounds crazy, but if you had just lost your home, if your entire city had been leveled to rubble with the entire international community sort of standing by and watching, if you had lost family members, if you had seen children bleed out in the hospital, in hospitals that don't have the necessary uh, material to even tend to the horrific wounds that are coming in on a far too regular basis, one might start to think some extremist thoughts, too. This is, this is the problem. Aleppo will haunt us for a while. It'll haunt us in ways we can't even tell yet. And the assassination attempt, uh, attempt on this Russian ambassador is just one of many incidents of violence that are going to come well outside of Syria as a result of what's happening inside Syria. All right, we'll go to a break. Right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Team sponsor this half hour is Super Beats. Because you're a Super Beat, Super Beat, you're Super Beaty. That's right. Beats are a nutrition gold mine. They are rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. Dietary nitrates convert to nitric oxide in the body, which is the secret to how it works. Nitric oxide can help boost circulation and maintain healthy blood pressure levels. Super Beats is the easiest way to get these dietary nitrates naturally, and they specifically help with circulation. I love that I'm doing something healthy for my heart, my circulation, my blood pressure, and I have amazing energy and stamina all day now. You can get benefits of three whole beets in one teaspoon of Super Beats with no beet taste. 
I feel confident offering this to my listeners because whenever I take Super Beats, I get a little jolt of energy within 20 minutes of taking it. So please call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister guaranteed or your money back. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com. 800-311-4367 or teambuckbeats, B-E-E-T-S, dot com. What got Team Buck Beats? Beat, 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 beats. I could do a little Super Beats rap for you guys sometime. That's, that's how awesome I am to my sponsors. I come up with raps on the fly. It's a different, a different version of freestyle. Uh, the electors are meeting today. We'll talk about that more next hour, but I'm assuming. Have they, have they already? Uh, I guess they're, they're in the process of, of doing this. Uh, I, I loved reading some of the, uh, some of the stuff with the New York Times just sort of doing an explainer on how the Electoral College meets today. Here's what to expect. But, of course, they keep putting in there. I mean, we all know that, like, crazy things could happen, though, because of Trump, right? So they, uh, it's been six weeks since the election, and Donald Trump, uh, of course, <laughs> who lost the popular vote but is projected to win the most electoral votes, this is the Times writing, has thrust the Electoral College into the spotlight once more. Uh, with the conclusion of American intelligence agencies that Russia tried to intervene in the election to harm Hillary Clinton's campaign. <sighs> Gosh, they're just not letting this thing go. Once all the states, it's sort of done at a state level, and then they send all their stuff in, and then in D.C. they count them. And uh, uh, Congress, I think what the Congress counts them or something. Mr. Biden asks, once all the votes are counted, if there are any objections, because Biden's VP, head of the Senate, and lawmakers can then challenge either either individual electoral votes or state results as a whole. If an elector has chosen to vote against state results, that is the moment when lawmakers can petition to throw that vote out. So there might be some shenanigans. You had the Drudge Report yesterday with the headline that electors are under siege, that some of these people, I mean, can you imagine you sign up to be an elector? You, you figure it's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, you're kind of a functionary. You're not really doing much other than just voting the way that your state has told you you're supposed to vote. And, yeah, uh, the electors are getting death threats. People are trying to still push this. I mean, just think about what that would be like for a second. Think about what the country feels like if, after Trump wins this election, the Electoral College did have some sort of a coup, even if it's legal. I mean, even if it's theoretically acceptable— there's a difference between theoretically acceptable and truly acceptable. I mean, pr- President Obama, for example, could theoretically, uh, one by one, pardon, you know, he, he could pardon every criminal in every federal prison in the country. Just just so he could do that. I mean, it would take him a long time. Or maybe he would do it sort of en masse. But that just, we, we expect him not to do that, right? <laughs> there's, some, there's some places where we just think people won't go and that the Electoral College would even really consider overturning the precedent of, or overturning the, the votes here, it would be, to borrow from Trump and his tweet over the weekend, unprecedented. See, I think he's made up a new word. I think everyone's jumping on him for this one. And yeah, granted, he should know how to spell unprecedented. But unprecedented is actually kind of a cool word when you think about it. I feel like it could be unadulterated, like not messed with, but by the president, right? So somebody could say, well, that policy is unprecedented, as in the president didn't have a direct hand in it. 
what's up making words everybody so this is by the way uh when bush called himself the decider brilliant it's the best way to say it and also when you say misunderestimated uh i also think that's a great word even though it's not it wasn't technically a word and i think they've become words now as they should i mean i hope one day personally to be an unprecedented decider the bug sexton show on the blaze radio network Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Buck Sexton Team, it's spy time Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is Spy Time. John Schindler, columnist for the New York Observer, formerly of the National Security Agency, joins us now to tackle a whole bunch of news and things going on around the world. John, great to have you. Great to be here as always, Buck. All right, so uh, I just see the reports now that the Russian ambassador who was shot in Turkey is dead. Um, I haven't seen that confirmed by major news sources yet, but I am seeing that by some. Uh, I see your tweet here, John, from just a few minutes ago. I have never expected, much less wanted, my expertise in the Sarajevo 1914 assassination and coming of World War I to be too relevant. Hashtag Ankara. What do you see going on here? Well, it's a heck of a, heck of a day. Uh, the Russian state media is reporting that Alexei Karlov, the Russian ambassador, a longtime foreign ministry official, uh, is dead. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising. There's video all over the Internet of the shooting. He was shot multiple times at close range at an art gallery in Ankara. Um, uh, he, this actually was his first sort of big public to-do since the rapprochement between the Turks and Russians, who just a few months ago were ready to kill each other. If you recall, Tur- Turkish Air Force shot down a Russian fighter jet on the border with Syria, and things have gotten better, and now this. Uh, the assailant has been tentatively identified as a Turkish police officer. That is not confirmed, but that appears to be the case, which would explain why he was able to get so close to the ambassador, and there wasn't much security otherwise. Uh, this is a terrible thing. I mean, this, this, is, this, this is how war starts. I'm not saying it's going to, but these are the sorts of misunderstandings between states with this great tension, as there, as there is throughout the entire Middle East and, and the Near East right now over Syria and a lot of other things. These are the events that can really get out of hand, so let's hope it doesn't. Now, the way that this is going to go down, I would assume, is that no matter what the official line is on the background and motivations of the assassin here, People are going mm-hmm. to sort of ascribe any number of motivations to it, and there'll be a lot of both sort of conspiracy theory pushing and also uh, just people that are, are trying to sort of look at what the next steps will be. I mean, how do you think 
How are the Turks going to frame this? How are the Russians going to approach this? What do you see the various parties involved here yeah. doing in response? Well, first of all, let's get out there that both Turkey and Russia are countries which love conspiracy theories and have governments that are never really straight with the public anyway, which is a great vehicle for conspiracy theories taking hold of a narrative. So you can expect, as I said, this is going to be the kook, kook Super Bowl or World Cup of conspiracy theories here, this assassination. Uh, the Turks will, who are already making dark hints about conspiracies and foreign intelligence involvement, will pin this on uh, Kurds or, and or the Gulenist conspiracy, which is this this is this uh, leading imam who actually lives in Pennsylvania that has become the public enemy number one of the Erdogan uh, regime recently. Uh, the Russians, for their part, undoubtedly will finger jihadists, probably presumably ISIS here. We, we do see on the footage that is available that the gunman uh, made a statement about, you know, we're dying in Aleppo, uh, of course, city in Syria under siege. Uh, you know, you die here. He held up his finger, which is a sort of a standard jihadist one-finger salute. So the Russian case, this may have been an ISIS operation. Certainly, it certainly well could be. Uh, but I wouldn't expect the Turks to sign off on that just yet. All right. Now let's talk a bit about the. So we'll, there'll be more about this coming out, obviously. And, and yeah. it's really, in a sense, I said this at the beginning of the hour. Anytime someone's and there's an ambassador who's assassinated, it's a surprise. There's a sort of moment of shock. But given what's happening in Aleppo that any yeah. Russian figure would be targeted right now anywhere in the world, quite honestly, is, uh, is something that they, they must be now obviously even more prepared for. But it is not is yeah. not out of out of the blue in the sense that you can draw a pretty straight line between Russian intervention in Aleppo and people deciding they're going to try to even the score somewhere. Uh, absolutely. I, I think no one should be surprised that this has happened, frankly. I, I am surprised that the late ambassador didn't seem to have any Russian security with them at this public event, certainly not as visible uh, in the footage we've seen, and that's been reported without without confirmation. And that seems to be a very a very non-Russian way to approach this, given that the threat had to be real. The Russian Russian involvement supporting the Syrian regime and its, and its campaign to subdue Aleppo and then crush various rebellions in Syria has gotten Russia enormously bad press uh, in, in radical Islamist circles around the world. That a Russian ambassador has been shot, frankly, unfortunately, shouldn't surprise anyone. Now, let's talk a bit about the latest on Russia, and we'll continue to follow this, and we'll have John back when we have yeah. more information, if there is more, on sort of the, the background of the assassin and who takes credit for yeah. it. But for now, it's still in the sort of hours after breaking news status. Uh, what's the latest on the Russian involvement in the election? I mean, this is everyone is still in this country engaged in this battle. And, and as you and I have talked about it, John, it, Russia was involved. Russia didn't throw the election. You can hold these two things simultaneously. And, and yet people seem to want to push one or the other all the time. Right, and this is where both the Republicans and Democrats uh, have are, have decided to adopt a different a different set of lies. Okay, they'll call it a narrative, but really these are dishonesties. First of all, the Trump team, and I shouldn't say all Republicans, but but the Trump team has decided that Russia had absolutely nothing to do with hacking anyone, much less disinformation. You have mouthpieces for the campaign uh, like Roger Stone tweeting out that really the source of the purloined Democratic emails was some American leaker. Maybe it was really NSA. It certainly wasn't the Russians. And this is just nonsense. And soon-to-be President Trump is out there saying almost the same thing, uh, indicating there's really no Russian story, which is complete nonsense. We, we know we know, and not just the U.S. government, but plenty of outside experts know it was a Russian front, essentially, who hacked the emails or you know, intercepted them using some modern techniques and then passed in the WikiLeaks. That's not up for debate. However, 
the Democrats are now engaging in an equally dishonest counter-narrative that it was all the Russians, that, that somehow Hillary was robbed of her rightful prize on the 8th of November due to Russian clandestine malfeasance. Look, we need to find some middle ground. The, the facts are these. Covert action by itself cannot create political circumstances. Okay? It can only manipulate what's already there. It was not Russian intelligence who made Hillary run an awful campaign that told huge swaths of the American public they were deplorable and therefore don't deserve our, our compassion and understanding. It wasn't Russian intelligence who made Hillary run a you know, private server for her email at the State Department in her bathroom, thereby allowing them to be exploited by Lord knows how many intelligence services. That was Hillary. The Russians played a dirty game. It was illegal. It was wrong. It needs to be combated. But there's no evidence the Russians per se elected Hillary. And the narrative there is so much easier for the Democrats to swallow than actually confronting why they lost. Uh, now, you know, later on, I'm going to have uh, Steve Yates on. I don't know if you know Steve. He was a Bush administration yeah. official, deputy national security advisor to, to uh, Dick Cheney, uh, also a guy with a lot of expertise in East Asia. And I'm going to ask him, OK, see, we all know that China seizing the and I'm getting ahead of myself here. We haven't talked about it on the show today, sure. but the underwater unmanned vehicle, the UUV. Um, that that's a provocation, right? And then, of course, the question, and everyone says, we need to do, do something, and it usually falls apart a little bit on the do something, right? What's the proper response yeah. to somebody seizing your vehicle, I mean, your underwater unmanned vehicle? I, I want to ask you, what is the proper response to what Russia's done? Because I keep, I feel like one of the arguments that's constantly being made now is, well, we need to investigate because we need better security because this is about the integrity of our elections. And I, I'm with you. Yeah, Russia did this. Um, it seems increasingly clear they did do it to to help Trump at you know at some at some point at some level in the game they're like you know what let's let's do more to help Trump than uh, than uh, and, and hurt Hillary but uh, knowing all that already what do we get from an investigation other than telling John Podesta you know don't open a Bitly link in your email that says reset your password here. Right. I mean, a couple of things. First of all, I think we need a genuine bipartisan joint multi-committee congressional investigation just to try to bring some consensus here. It's not going to work, but we need to try for the good of, of, our, of the integrity of our political system. We need better cybersecurity. That's obvious. It's gone in the tank under Obama. We need to take cybersecurity a lot more seriously. But you're never going to stop this. This is normal signals intelligence in the 21st century. This is SIGINT. We do it. The Russians do it. Everyone does it. What we need to do is deter the Russians from doing these sorts of covert actions again to manipulate our politics. And that, I think, is doable. If you send the message to the Russians, cut it out. We know you're intercepting these messages. And by the way, if you're an important person in Washington and you're using open email, the Russians, the Chinese, others are almost certainly reading it. And just accept it. Probably don't put things in that email that you don't want possibly someone to see down the road. And by the way, Republicans who are currently gloating at Democrats about the embarrassment of all the emails that have been leaked by WikiLeaks, that is to say Moscow, better keep in mind the Russians have their emails too. And if they change their mind about who they want to back in Washington, this can get very embarrassing for you. What Obama should have done but did not do, refused to do, shut down efforts to do, was to actively combat Russian disinformation, point out where they're lying, and also send a message to the Russians that they will understand. If their intelligence services are acting in ways that violate our laws flagrantly, throw them all out. We know who almost all the Russian intelligence officers in America are at their embassies and consulates, posting as diplomats, trade officials, whatnot. This is where we, in spy speak, you PNG them. You make them persona non grata. You throw them out. Break their espionage network in this country. That will be a message that Putin, the former counterintelligence officer, will understand loud and clear.
So there are things we can do. See, this is you know, people. We, we get into this discussion, and people are always saying, "Well, you know, what what are we going to do?" There, there are means of pushing back against this, short of, as I think a lot of people like to say, nuclear war. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't have to be well, you know fire exactly. fire the Trident missiles. Exactly, and this option is presented as a do nothing, b Armageddon. That's nonsense. That that's just crazy talk. There is a language of you know this sort of spy war that Putin especially understands. Throw out their spies. Start undertaking aggressive operations against them. It has been suggested by some that, of course, we know lots of dirty secrets of how Putin's Russia's really run. We do, by the way, and that we should leak them. We should pull a WikiLeaks on them. I'm not sure that's wise. This, this, that really could get very ugly in a tit-for-tat range, but make it very clear to the Russians, we know what you're doing, and you really have to cut it out right now. Yeah, not Russia, not a good place to be a critic of the regime, as we know. That's uh, right. That's all right. we have to do is talk exactly. to Alexei Navalny, any number of other individuals over there, and you find out very quickly there are problems. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those are legitimate angles for us to exploit. And there's plenty of ways to exploit them short of going to war. I mean, this, this is just crazy talk. I mean, we're, we're not going to war with Russia over this. Uh, but we do have to at least give them a cost of their actions, make it expensive for them in terms that they care about as a disincentive to doing more of it. We can't change anything. The horses are already out of the barn. Obama wants to shut the barn now, months too late. It doesn't matter now. What matters is where we go from here. John Schindler is the national security columnist for New York Observer. He's at 20 Committee on Twitter. We're actually going to keep him through the break because we're going to talk about World War I for a little bit on the other side and a column John wrote on that that I highly commend to all of you. John, stay with us, please. Team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. We're back with John Schindler at 20 Committee on Twitter. He's the uh, columnist for the New York Observer on national security. Great piece he wrote over the weekend. The Butcher's Bill of 1916, Europe's blood-drenched year of horror. Uh, John, we've only got a few minutes, but I wanted you to just sort of walk us through a bit of what you talk about here. uh, The anniversary of the end of the Battle of Verdun. Yeah, I mean, the, the 100th anniversary of that horrible battle's ending was on the weekend, 100 years. Uh, and I, I was just trying to make the point that, one, as bad as things seem in Europe right now, and they're, they're pretty bad uh, between uh, uh, mass Muslim migration, rising terrorism, lots of instability in Eastern Europe, but things are really great, pretty great now compared to where they were 100 years ago when Europe was in the middle of killing itself, murdering off millions of its own young men and then middle-aged men and just men. Uh, and uh, destroying their civilization, which at the time was by far the dominant one in the world. And how this happened is not an accident, and I think history matters. And the lessons of 1916 are also that it's really hard to stop things once you get them going. And in 1916 was the year where the fighting on all the fronts in World War I had become uh, static and attritional, and the victory would come to the side that lasted the longest in these horrible conditions, which was, of course, what happened at the end of 1918, uh, and that no one knew how to make, make it stop, how to, how to turn the, the meat grinder off. And this meant that at Verdun, at the Somme, on the Isonzo front in, in Italy, on the Eastern Front, on every front, European armies were killing each other in numbers no one had ever seen, literally by the millions, yet it wasn't changing anything strategically. And this sort of stalemate would lead to the political collapse of Russia in 1917 
and of course with that the coming of communism and all the nightmares that followed, uh, and the collapse of German, the German Empire and Austria-Hungary, and of course the Ottoman Empire too in 1918, creating the sort of disordered world in parts of Europe and the Middle East that we're still dealing with today. It is amazing, as you point out of the piece, that there were fronts in that war that are essentially completely forgotten to to a vast majority yeah. of people, including battles and, and, and periods on those fronts when, as you said, hundreds of thousands, if millions of people were killed. Yeah, there's a very strange bias in the English-speaking world toward the Western Front, which, I mean, the, the bias itself isn't odd because that's where most English-speaking soldiers fought. And also they'll, they'll throw in a little interest in other fronts if there are English speakers there. You know, they've heard of Gallipoli, the famous battle in Turkey in 1915, because there was a movie a long time ago with Mel Gibson in it about that, and that was when he was sort of young and hot and not the sort of furry anti-Semite he is today. Uh, so, 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 so people have heard of that. But beyond that, it's a huge gap. And the other fronts, I've written uh, books on other fronts, the Italian front, the Eastern front, that are huge, that were absolutely decisive to the outcome of the war. But frankly, they get really undersold in the English-speaking world, and most Americans fairly just haven't heard about them. Give, oh, us a John, give us a John Schindler book to buy on the First World War, and then also give well, us your... Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and give us your other, other than other than Schindler, uh, give us your best World War One book all time. Yeah. Well, uh, if you want a one-stop uh, shop, the book by Hugh Strawn, the one-volume work is outstanding. The one-volume work by the late John Keegan called The First World War is a great sort of one-stop intro to the whole struggle. Uh, I've published a couple books in World War I, one in 2001 called Isonzo, The Forgotten Sacrifice of the Great War, about the Italian front. And my new one came out just uh, right about a year ago. Uh, John, thank you. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the hut. We're joined now by our good friend Stephen Yates. He is the chairman of the Idaho Republican Party, formerly Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. Steve, great to have you. Thank you, Buck. Great to be with you. And you were just, before we get into the latest uh, shenanigans with China, uh, you were just over uh, out in that part of the world. Uh, how was your trip? Well, that was an interesting trip. I went to uh, Taiwan and to Japan. Uh, and, of course, Taiwan was in the news a little bit uh, around that time, given that uh, President-elect Trump chose to receive a congratulatory phone call from the Taiwan president, and that sent people a buzz, and then there's been an exchange about one China policy, and both capitals were interested in what's going on with the United States and trade. So fruitful conversations had by all, but the security situation was equally of concern, if not greater, in both of those capitals. Too. Let me ask you just quickly about the, the on the Taiwanese side of, of the ledger, was there a sense of, of, of sort of overall happiness and satisfaction that Trump actually did speak to them? Well, it's sort of like a multi-layered cake. On one level, they're they're thrilled. At the same time, it was just a phone call, and a phone call that probably should have been made 30 years ago. 
And if it took you 30 years to get to some basic level of civility in taking a democratically elected leader's congratulatory phone call, uh, they worry about how long it could take for another step. On the other hand, they're very, very anxious about being used as a pawn in a greater chess game with China. So while they want to say thank you for the the love and respect on one level, they're always worried about being left behind in some kind of bargain, given that that's exactly what Henry Kissinger and Big Brzezinski did to them in the Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations. Now let's talk a bit about this latest dust-up with China. The uh, U.S. had a had a naval uh, obser- sort of uh, observation ship that was using an underwater unmanned vehicle, a UUV. People are calling it a, it's a drone, underwater drone to pick up uh, temperature and depth and information like that. They say it's totally unclassified. Uh, Chinese warship uh, inside of the U.S. ship seized it, just picked it out of the water. They're saying that they just wanted to make sure it didn't cause problems for other ships. This thing is six feet long. I don't think it's, you know, I I don't think that's a a, a reasonable explanation for why they would pluck this thing out of the water. Uh, Why why would China do this? I mean, that's the first question. Then we'll get into what we should do in response. What's the Chinese play here? Well, they've been increasingly aggressive in demonstrating that the seas are theirs in their near abroad. They have very expansive claims on territory. They've been building out man-made islands and not just using them for fishing or planting a flag, actually building runways and being able to base military materiel off of their shores. And so they've, ever since our EP3 crash, uh, which we should say their pilot ran into our uh, very nimble large surveillance aircraft, uh, that they've, they've been looking at ways of pushing back on the notion that the United States or other powers have the right to conduct any kind of freedom of navigation exercises uh, within you know, a certain mileage distance of China. So it's part of their strategy of challenging things. Uh, and when you're talking about an unmanned vessel, they probably think it's a lower risk uh, and they can take this kind of action to see what the United States response is. Now, this is what I'm, I'm always fascinated by. And you're somebody who understands the Asia portfolio well from your time in government. This, this happens. And of course, people on the left, Democrats, broadly speaking, are going to say, Let's not get, you know, let's not get everything all in, in, a, in a hissy here. You know, let's not all freak out about this. Uh, we don't want to overstep. The Obama administration, I, I think, has, has I don't know, they, they've said they'll accept the return of the drone. That's pretty much their, their, they requested it back. They're accepting it back. On the right, though, you hear, uh, we should do more. There should be a response. There should be something that, that happens here. Clearly, we're not about to fire a bunch of, uh, you know, missiles into mainland China because they picked a six-foot drone out of the water. Um, but also this is done to sort of test the limits of what the U.S. response both of this administration and perhaps the temperament of the next administration will be. So, Stephen, what are some possible out-in-the-open responses that, that would be worthwhile to this? You know, people say we, the, the Obama administration should do more. Okay, like what? Well, number one, they should at very least uh, make clear that the Chinese stole our property. Uh, and, you know, that's never okay. And to just say, well, we'll take it back as if this was like a wallet accidentally left on the street and we'll hand you your wallet back with all your cards and cash intact, it's not exactly the case. They they took our property. Who knows what they did with it while they had it? 
uh, and that we should never, ever acknowledge that it's acceptable behavior. And you have to come up with some sense on your own um, what kind of cost should be imposed. But if there's no cost imposed, you can guarantee that you're going to get bullied and taken advantage of more. Uh, and I have no idea what the calculus of the incoming administration is going to be on what things should be in play in the U.S.-China relationship, but everything from politics of visits to trade and other kinds of privileges to military kind of maneuvers and actions. Maybe they should be uninvited from observer positions in our multilateral training exercises. Something, there has to be some measure of cost paid to their dignity at the very least for doing this kind of thing. Now, would, would you suggest perhaps economic, uh, some sort of e- economic response, or is it, is it dangerous? I mean, I, I've seen people analyze this on, on, in both ways. Some say, well, you have to extract sort of economic pain in order to get them to not do these sorts of more national security uh, provocations. Uh, and others say, no, no, you don't want to start tying those two things together explicitly because then you're just asking for problems. Uh, where do you come down on that? Well, I come down on the side of you need to try different things. Uh, and the Chinese themselves do not disaggregate the, any of their interests in the United States into discrete channels. They will very, very often attach economic uh, interest to their national security objectives. Uh, and so if, say, for instance, there are companies that are doing business in Taiwan and they don't want to support that kind of effort, they will, that, that's a, a national security objective of theirs, they will tie economic interests on the mainland to that. So they could punish companies in terms of limited access on the mainland if they are not playing by Beijing's rules in terms of access to Taiwan. There's any number of ways in which politics, economics, and security are blended together, and China is much better than we are at letting all of their levers of power be accessible to them while trying to limit what we think we have available to us in response. We can't be flippant about this, and we have to be mindful of escalating to a level that is out of proportion in what we're dealing with. But at the same time, I think a new administration needs to try different things. Sometimes the Chinese are more susceptible to the symbolic things, and that's why I would consider you know, disinviting them to a, a multilateral military exercise as a small symbolic step, which might actually seem more costly to them in terms of prestige than if we sent them a bill for however many millions of dollars we wanted to for our inconvenience and for theft of our property. Now, if we tie this to the string of similar Chinese provocations in the past, including when that U.S. Navy EP-3 uh, was clipped, uh, you you mentioned this, over the South China Sea back in 2001, Uh, they imprisoned our crew for 11 days, they stripped the plane of sensitive electronic equipment, uh, then there was the 2002 incident with a Chinese fishing boat ramming uh, a, a U.S. ship um, to disable its sonar. Uh, there, in March of 2009, uh, Chinese craft tried to sever the towed sonar array from the United States Navy impeccable. Uh, this is all in the South China Sea, by the way, so clearly this is a, a, a cauldron that is bubbling up more and more. Um, what did we do? It seems like in those cases we said, sorry, China, please don't be mad at us. Well, we sort of had uh, angry letters or their equivalent sent to say how unacceptable it all is. Uh, Secretary Clinton went to Southeast Asia for a multilateral summit meeting and 
issued tough words of deterrence, but it was never really backed up in a meaningful way uh, that had any impact on China's behavior. Uh, I think we do need to multilateralize some burden sharing among the different countries that are affected by what China's doing. They need to share in the risk and responsibility uh, for uh, China's aggression. And even though we have quirky relations with a quirky new leader in the Philippines and complicated relations around that ring with equities in South China Sea, we have a similar problem in the East China Sea. So really across Asia, we need to be looking in a fresh way about increasing the, the independent deterrence capability of our allies and partners and make sure they're sharing some of the effort to push back against this kind of aggression from China. South China Sea is the most likely place uh, for the Trump administration to run into some real issues, uh, military issues, naval issues with China, I would assume. Yes, I mean, this is going to be, if there is a flashpoint with China where things go beyond angry letters, it would seem to be in this region. That, well, it's that and, and East China because of the unpredictability of North Korea. We're always at risk of things happening in that, in that theater. And we have territorial disputes that really run all of China's periphery along the Pacific there. And it's not just a military issue, uh, given the huge amounts of global trade and energy and other goods that go through these waterways. It's a massive economic interest for all of East Asia. I also wanted to ask you, and this is kind of returning to our uh, the beginning of the conversation with Taiwan, we sell Taiwan advanced military hardware. We sell it missiles specifically uh, designed to be able to take out ships at long distance. Uh, and we've been doing that for a while, and yet a, a phone call that somehow runs afoul of the one China perception, I know it's a policy, but it seems to be, you know, ta- Taiwan is this other place that isn't really a part of China, uh, sets off this reaction in, in the media and with China and the Chinese media and the Chinese government. Why does I think a lot of people look at this and ask, why is it OK for us to sell the missiles that can blow up Chinese ships and would make a Chinese military action against Taiwan much more difficult? But a phone call from the president elect that gets everybody upset. Well, I think this is just part of what I consider to be a very irrational part policy by the United States. Uh, one whose terms are largely dictated by Beijing, you know, basically saying what words we're allowed to use and who we're allowed to talk to and what our dealings with other people are allowed to be. Uh, and while a lot of our diplomats and the people who set this framework up will vigorously disagree, I still would posit that's the case uh, and that the, the reason they sort of condone this concession to China and letting them control what we do is because Beijing is so big and powerful and so dangerous and we're so dependent on our economic relationship with them. I just think that we hold a lot more cards that we don't play. And fundamentally, I don't think any U.S. administration should ever accept being dictated to by a foreign power in terms of what they can and can't do, uh, especially when it's the, the hostile government in Beijing that's saying that handling Taiwan the wrong way could lead to conflict. If you think of all the conflict zones we have around the world, American presidents and the representatives engage both sides of those conflicts to try to keep peace. This yeah, it's is astonishing to me one. that we, we, can, we can talk to Iran. You know, we'll talk to Iran now. We'll talk to Cuba. We'll talk to, you know, talk to Russia. We'll talk to anybody. But talking to Taiwan, that's a problem. Right. And that's just, you know, every American should think that's a point of insanity. 
and anyone that makes policy should say, okay, this is evidence that we've let things go too far. I don't think the Trump administration wants to completely revolutionize what the relationship is with a major power like China, but certainly the early signs are looking at rebalancing in a way that more favors American interests and I think common sense. Steve Yates is the chairman of the Idaho Republican Party. He is at Yates DCIA on Twitter. Uh, Stephen, always great to have you. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise. Good to good to talk to you. Thank you, Buck. Take care. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three on the phone lines team. The phones are open. Our sponsor this half hour is SilencerShop.com. Hey, it's Christmas time. Maybe you should think about getting a silencer, although you probably won't be able to get it in time for Christmas because it takes some paperwork. But you know what? The paperwork and the time, all the stuff that's required, SilencerShop.com will help you with that. A silencer is a must-have accessory for your firearm. It makes shooting more enjoyable. It reduces the blast to a much more comfortable level. And when shooting with a silencer, shooting becomes a more social sport because it's easier to communicate and enjoy the environment. And if you're looking for the best price, the best service, the best selection of actual products for silencers, for suppressors out there, silencershop.com is the place to go. So check it out. Uh, Also, by the way, just one more thing. Buying from Silencer Shop is like buying local since your local dealer sets the price and makes the profit. So go to silencershop.com for more. That is silencershop.com and help make the world a quieter place. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. So uh, the head of the DOJ, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, sat down for an interview with CNN's Jake Tapper over the weekend. And she addressed the uh, the question that I'm sure is uh, on a lot of people's minds still, which is, you know, remember that whole thing when right before the FBI more or less stepped in front of DOJ prerogative and said that there shouldn't be any charges because no reasonable prosecutor would bring charges. Remember that whole thing happened? And you had that weird meeting on the tarmac with Bill Clinton a couple of days before that announcement by FBI Director Comey, where it was the attorney general having a private meeting on a on a on her private plane. Of course, all of our government, senior government officials now travel, travel private. Always remember that, by the way. They have motorcades like like Caesar is in town leaving the you know, Naval Observatory heading down to the White House or something. It's ridiculous. People say, oh, but safety. They're fine, all right? Like 10 Secret Service guys and a couple of armored cars. This is America. This is in Mogadishu. Anyway, uh, it's, it is ridiculous. I, I don't care anybody. This whole thing about they need to, like, block all the streets and all this other stuff. No, maybe it'd be good for some of our elected officials to know what it's like to sit in traffic. Anyway, they got phones. They can handle it. So, uh... Loretta Lynch, though, she's on a private plane talking to Bill Clinton days before his wife is effectively cleared of criminal uh, criminal liability by the FBI in front of the whole country. And she says the following to explain how somebody who has spent decades in public service, I would assume at this point, I don't really know what her career is. I know she was at the Eastern District of New York beforehand. She's a she's the senior most prosecutor in the United States government. Ethics rules you think would be high in her mind, perception high in her mind. Here's what she offers up. Play clip one. As I've said at the time, I think like days after that meeting, I regretted not seeing that issue 
and not seeing around that corner. You know, I regretted viewing it as just, again, uh, as the number of people who come by and say hello. It didn't cross your you mind see. when you were sitting there like, oh, somebody's going to make a big deal out of this. And, and our conversation went on a lot longer, certainly, than I had anticipated, it, because it was just going to be, hello, how are you, and everyone was going to go on about their evening, as far as we were concerned. He's a talker. Um, he is a talker, yes, yes, yes he yeah, is a talker. A talker. I really do believe, Jake, that um, you know things happen. And as I said, I wish I had seen around that corner and, and not had that discussion with the former president as innocuous as it was, because it did give people concern. It did make people wonder. She talked to him for like 20 or 30 minutes. The investigation that's okay. going hold on. on. Hold, hold, hold on a second. Um, this, is, this is a giant steamy pile of BS. She talked to him for a while, according to the reports. Okay, it, it wasn't a quick, a quick exchange of pleasure. Look, she spoke to him for two or three minutes. I'd be like, that doesn't look great, but I get it, right? You know, two minutes, I mean, how much is really going to be, and also with other people around. But it wasn't that. And it was in private. And it went on for quite a while. Uh, I'm sorry. The I didn't see around that corner is not a real excuse. It's not an explanation. And I also think Tapper, who, you know, made a sort of name for himself before in network news by occasionally asking a real question as a senior White House, uh, White House journalist, whatever you call those guys, White House press corps. And... You know, he goes, yeah, yeah, Bill Clinton's a talker. Are you kidding me? You accept this ex- You accept this explanation that she didn't see around that corner? She didn't think that people would freak out given the timeline of when? Oh, she, she didn't know the FBI announcement was going to be made? You're kidding me, right? Does anyone believe that? I mean, this is the kind of stuff, you know, Russia hacking we have to hear about now every day. And, oh, the amount of journalistic resources, it's like... It's like we're covering, uh, you know, the, the, the invasion of or, or the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor every day with the cyber stuff with Russia. But we're just going to accept, you know, Bill Clinton, he's a talker. So, sure, Loretta Lynch, that's all that happened there. Please. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show on the Blaze Radio Network. We've got Charles Cook, editor of National Review Online, joining now. Charles, great to have you, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, first, let's talk a bit about the electors, if you don't mind. The real voting, as people are saying, for the for the White House is now underway. The official voting <laughs> via the electors. Uh, I, I, so much coverage of this in recent uh, in recent weeks about how. You know, are they bound? Are they un, are, are they uh, duty bound? Are they legally bound to vote a certain way? Could there be some sort of an electoral coup? Uh, this is going to be a big nothing burger. Trump's going to be president, right? Right. And he should be because he won the election. It's amazing to me how many people were willing to sort of play this game of, well, theoretically, they could take it away from him. So maybe we should all just write articles about that. And I mean, in places like The New York Times, The Washington Post, places that have some reputation, or at least had some reputation to protect, uh, they were willing to engage in all sorts of irresponsible speculation about how the Electoral College would act this time around. I like the Electoral College, and I think that it should remain uh, within the Constitution for two reasons. One, it forces uh, the people of the United States to remember that this is a federal system. And two, it provides a backstop 
in uh, such case as somebody who is utterly unsuited, not just unsuited, not just borderline unfit, not just unliked, uh, but utterly uh, unsuited, is elected president. But that hasn't happened here. I'm a staunch critic of Donald Trump's, as you know. I think in many ways he is unfit for office. Um, but that decision uh, lies with the American people. And there's been an attempt to pretend that he is uh, so far out on the ledge that the Electoral College is obliged to intervene. We've heard more of the Federalist Papers recited by progressives this week than probably in the last hundred years. Uh, and the arguments are all spurious. Uh, unless Donald Trump was in contact with Vladimir Putin, that the Russians tried to influence the election does not make him an illegitimate candidate or an illegitimate president-elect. Uh, I'm pleased to see there's been no drama today because, as I said, Donald Trump won the election. I want to ask you about your piece. Uh, no, Trump conservative critics have not been destroyed or silenced. This seems to be a, another another idea that's really actually pushed a lot by the left in the sort of all-out assault on all things Trumpism. It seems like they're trying to goad some of Trump's conservative critics into going after him quite a bit more. But I, I wanted to just give you the floor to, to lay out some of the argument and, and the points that you made in your piece on National Review Online. Well, I keep being told uh, that I'm now a Trump defender, that I'm now a Trumpist, a Trump backer, a lover of Trump. And it's simply not the case. I, I think it's being done for two reasons. Firstly, because uh, progressives can never uh, place conservatives on the right side of any moral question. And uh, for them, uh, Trump was on the wrong side of history. And those conservatives who disliked him must therefore be discredited, lest anyone think they are reasonable or even worse, correct. But it's also a misunderstanding of what Never Trump was about and what it meant. Uh, I was against Donald Trump. I wasn't against conservatism. Uh, I had three main objections to Trump. Uh, one, I thought he was temperamentally unfit, or at least a risk. Two, uh, I thought he was not conservative. I worried very uh, greatly, continue to worry about what he will do in office, where his instincts are. And three, uh, I think he has uh, a deep ignorance um, about matters political, uh, both domestic and foreign. Uh, and as such, I didn't want the Republicans to nominate him. Uh, and I sat out the presidential race because I wasn't sure uh, which candidate in the long run uh, would do more damage to the things I care about. But the fact is, he won. Um, my uh, voice is not a particularly loud one. It's certainly uh, not the, uh, the arbiter of American politics. Uh, and he is now going to be the president. Uh, so while it made sense uh, when the GOP was choosing a nominee to say, I don't think you should choose that guy. And while it made sense during the election when asked to say, I don't know how I would vote. I don't know if I could vote for either major party candidate. It doesn't make sense now uh, to man the barricades. I mean, he's going to be president. That's not up for debate. As such, the only moral course, I think, is to judge him on the merit, uh, is to do what I've done for President Obama, to say, well done, uh, when he does something good, to say, uh, that's terrible, when he does something bad, uh, and to presume at all times that uh, as a man, he's going to be fallible. I don't really understand what it is uh, that the critics on the left want. Do they want me and others to oppose Trump even when I agree with him? Uh, if Paul Ryan pushes tax reform through the House and Donald Trump signs it, and I like the bill, 
what am I going to do? Am I going to slam him for it? Trump has put together what I think is mostly a good cabinet, and I've said so. Should I pretend that he hasn't? Uh, that way lies, lies madness. Charles Cook is editor of National Review Online. Charles, great to have you as always. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks, Buck. Team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, I've mentioned to you before that I'm amazed at how exaggerated the coverage that some of these uh, news sources exaggerated the coverage of uh, you know the sort of pro-Putin fake news story stuff. It's just completely out of touch with the reality of what's really gone on gone on with these places. Um. And how much impact it's had. Right? This is a key point, I think, that's worth spending a little bit of time on. Uh, there was a a piece in the New York Times over the weekend. A patriotic pro-Trump news site turned out to be propaganda effort by far-right Putin fan overseas. Uh, let me just read you how, how they set this up, and then we'll talk a bit about what the reality here is. The Patriot News Agency website popped up in July, soon after it became clear that Donald J. Trump would win the Republican presidential nomination, bearing a logo of a red, white, and blue eagle and the motto, Built by Patriots for Patriots. Tucked away on a corner of the site, next to links for Twitter and YouTube, is a link to another social media platform that most Americans have never heard of, Vkontakte, the Russian equivalent of Facebook. It is a clue that Patriot News, like many sites that appeared out of nowhere and pumped out pro-Trump hoaxes, tying his opponent Hillary Clinton to Satanism, pedophilia, and other conspiracies, is actually run by foreign by foreigners based overseas. Um, okay, so you look at this, you say to yourself, "Wow!" So there's this English language website that has con- that clearly has some connectivity to Russia because it's got links to the sort of Russian version of Facebook, and it's you know it, it's troubling to the New York Times, very very troubling to the New York Times that this would be something that's happening. I, I keep pointing out, and, and it doesn't seem to matter to many people, even though it has I believe hundreds of millions of views of its videos and such online. The Kremlin operates a straight up English language propaganda channel called Russia Today. The Kremlin actually has an English language channel meant to influence all of us, and it has for years. And this is supposed to be a surprise to us. Um, now, I want to get into the effectiveness or lack of effective, uh, effectiveness of this in a second, but, you know, there was the, the KGB defector um, Yuri Bezmenov. Do we have, we have a clip of him? I want to just play a little bit of him talking about active measures and... This is back in the 70s, this interview that he's giving. All right. This is, this is some great stuff with this guy on YouTube. Play clip two. Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do is to unplug their bananas from their ears 
open up their eyes and they can see it. There is no mystery. There is nothing to do with espionage. I know that espionage intelligence gathering looks more romantic. It sells more deodorants through the advertising, probably. That's why your Hollywood producers are so crazy about James Bond type of, of thrillers. But in reality, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, active мероприятия in the language of, of the KGB, active measures, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students. What's fascinating about this, other than you're hearing from somebody who really knows, uh, from a KGB defector decades ago, about how this whole process, or it might have been in the 80s, that clip, but anyway, decades ago, uh, about how this whole process works. And you also note that the left has, in fact, been the place where the Soviet Union, and I would even argue to you until very recently, Russia has always found a sort of warm host for its propaganda. The American Communist Party didn't just sort of disappear. It really filtered into what's more broadly termed the American left and sort of the various groups that exist within it. And some of them are uh, unions and some, you know, SEIU and these trade unions. and everything. I mean, the sort of workers of the world unite rallying cry has transformed a bit, but it's still the sort of basic collectivist nature of it has been infused into the American left and, and into the Democratic Party. Uh, this should not be lost on people. I, I think it's a fascinating turn of events right now that you have the right being held up as the sort of pro-Russian stooges when stretching back to, to actually the, just the end of the second or really even before it, but certainly since the end of the Second World War, the pro-Soviet, pro-Russian sentiment has almost exclusively come on the left. And the penetrations of the United States government, which we're going to be talking about in a few minutes here, the high-level subversion that occurred in the U.S. government, and the uh, huge amounts of espionage that occurred, and that was all involved. That was all from the left. But now, because of this election, you have the right is so pro-Russian. They love Russia. They think Putin's so great, and. Uh, that's really not the case. It's actually been a lot of Republican critics of the Obama administration who have wanted a stronger response from Obama to Putin's aggressive maneuvers on the Russian periphery and, and in Russian foreign policy. 
but this notion of ideological subversion, which was subversion, which he's talking about here in active measures and convincing a population that they shouldn't defend themselves, that they're no good, that their way of life is wrong and they should sort of join the Soviet method. That's always found uh, a sympathetic ear on the American left and in the Democratic Party in this country. And I, I think it's important to remind ourselves of that as now all of a sudden the Democrats are so hawkish on Russia and Russia's terrible. And look what it's done. Usually they're the ones making excuses for Russia. Usually they're the ones that certainly are making excuses for the Soviet Union. In fact, I think you could make a very clear argument that American academics had much greater sympathy for many years for the Soviet Union than they ever have had for Russia. But uh, that's perhaps a different discussion. Putin's sort of nationalism and uh, aggressive, really sort of masculine traditionalism, which is, I think, what Putin tries to project. I mean, and we think of it as sort of worthy of mockery in this country, but it is part of his persona. Um, and that's also what they see, I think, tying to Trump. That is viewed with disdain by the left. But the notion of a uh, of a, a sort of statist authoritarian power based on a socialist collectivist model with thousands of nuclear missiles, that was defended by much of the intelligentsia in this country, or at least downplayed as a threat. I and mean, we were often considered to be the more bellicose ones, despite all of the Soviets meddling all over the world, right? So we've just reached a very interesting point in time where for once, for their very sort of short-term reasons, the left has decided that Russia is a problem and, uh, you know, Russia is a problem and, and they want to stand up against Russia and they've got issues with Russia and they want a more muscular foreign policy, but it's really just because they've been pushed out of power and they want to blame somebody. Give it some time. I mean, the, the left is going to be there. They've gotten stung pretty badly here in their eye in their eyes uh, by Putin. So it's going to be sort of a personal anti-Putin thing. But if the Trump administration takes this is what I'm trying to prepare you for. If the Trump administration takes robust measures against Russia or to oppose Russia, then it will be Trump, the warmonger, Trump, the you know bull in the China shop, all that stuff. By the way, that website that I mentioned to you, um, I just wanted to finish this up on The New York Times that they were they were covering. On Facebook, I saw it has a total of 123 likes. So, yeah, that website, The New York Times, is doing a whole a whole you know rundown on. I mean, I know I know stores that sell wind chimes that have been open for three days that have a lot more Facebook likes than this patriotic pro-Trump site that may have turned helped turn the election. This is hysteria. It's nonsense. It's trash. And any news organization, especially The New York Times, which pretends to be so full of grandeur, should know better. Team Hour 3, more NatSec coming up. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. There's been a lot of discussion recently about what's going on with Russian active measures. Did it influence the election? 
Uh, we're joined by Dr. Harvey Clare. He is co-author of the book Spies, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America. He's also a professor of politics and history at Emory University. Dr. Clare, great to have you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, so we're hearing terms, terms that some people may be familiar with, but I'm sure many are not as a result of the uh, Russian interference uh, in the in the most recent U.S. election. We're hearing things like active measures and dis- disinformatia. Uh, this is not new, is it? No, it's not. The Russians have, uh, and before that, the Soviets have engaged in this for a very, very long time. And some of the things, uh, what are some of the more commonplace tactics that were used in sort of the, the pre-Internet era? We want to talk about how did the KGB, either in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world, try to influence elections in the past? Well, I don't think they directly uh, sought to influence elections most of the time. Um, perhaps the, the most um, obvious example in American history was 1948, when the Cold War had uh, been heating up for a couple of years since the end of World War II, and um, the, the Soviets were quite unhappy with what was going on in the United States, with Harry Truman in particular. They, they disliked the Republican Party even more. Um, and the American Communist Party, which is really a surrogate for the Soviet Union, um, wound up uh, pushing Henry Wallace, who had been Franklin Roosevelt's vice president before he was replaced in 1944. Uh, They pushed him to run for president, and the Communist Party threw its support to Wallace. Uh, They didn't think he could win, but they hoped that Wallace would take enough votes away from Truman to to cause the Democratic Party to lose, and that that would um, kind of push the Democratic Party to the left. So um, the the Soviet Union and the American Communist Party supported Wallace in 1948. It it failed miserably. He did did terribly, and uh, whatever influence the communists had in the United States disappeared as a result. Now, you've, you've written this book, and it's based on KGB archives that uh, also you, you took into account here uh, what happened in the career and the, and the background of former KGB officer Alexander Vasiliev. Um, what are some of the things that were going on in this country that people, uh, or, or anywhere around the world, rather, that the Soviet Union was up to that came to light as a result of, of these KGB archives that were not known before? Well, I think one of the things we've learned uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the opening up of Russian and American archives from the the, uh, 1940s and 1950s is just how extensive Soviet espionage directed against the United States was. Um, And it it was not just the Cold War. During, During World War II, when the United States and the Soviet Union were allies, there were several hundred Americans that were working for the KGB, that were spying on their own country. So um, the, the Russians had a very, very extensive espionage network. Um, and, and one of the things we've also learned is uh, just how um, devoted and committed they were to spying on the United States. They had a long-term program for infiltrating uh, Russians who had taken up identities as Americans into the United States. Uh, these were long-term sleeper agents. And uh, the most recent manifestation of this was a few years ago when about uh, 10 or 11 uh, Russian agents living in the United States under assumed names were exposed and deported. So it continued after the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
So for anybody who's wondering if there's been this uh, huge shift in relations since the Soviet uh, Soviet Union collapsed and and the wall fell, things are are different. But with the uh, intelligence services, some things have stayed somewhat the same. I mean, there's still been a very – the Russian intel services, uh, FSB, SVR, and GRU – remain very active, including against what they used to call the main adversary, which is the United States. That's absolutely correct. And, uh, uh, you know, the the collapse of the Soviet Union did not change uh, the nature or the uh, activities of Soviet uh, Russian intelligence. And, and, you know, we should never forget that uh, Vladimir Putin is a former KGB agent, and many of the people surrounding him come out of the intelligence community in Russia. And a few things. Your research into these KGB archives uh, and, and your work with uh, former KGB officer Alexander uh, Vasiliev, you confirm, for example, that Alger Hiss was, in fact, a longstanding agent of the Soviets. Who are some of the other well-known or, or perhaps less well-known uh, Soviet agents who were very much involved in intelligence work against the U.S.? Well, probably. I mean, Hiss certainly was. <laughs> Probably the most, the, the highest-ranking uh, American who worked for the Soviet Union was Harry Dexter White, who was the number two man in the Treasury Department uh, in the in the 19, late 1930s, uh, 1940s. Um, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were Soviet spies. Uh, Lachlan Curry, who was one of six White House aides to both uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, was a Soviet agent. Um, Duncan Lee, who was uh, the chief lawyer for the uh, OSS, the predecessor to the CIA, was a Soviet agent. Uh, Larry Duggan, who was uh, in charge of Latin American affairs for the State Department, was a Soviet agent. Um, There there was hardly an agency of the federal government that was not infiltrated by Soviet spies. And yet there still seems to be some uh, pushback on this, right? There are still some, and some of them are, are prominent uh, members of the Democratic Party, uh, past or present, who raise questions. I mean, the, the American left still seems unwilling to come to grips with the extent of KGB, uh, Soviet intelligence activities in this country. I mean, there are still people who claim that Hiss wasn't a spy, right? I mean, this this is, and the Rosenbergs, too. That's correct. Uh, you know, the, the, the phenomenon in the last, 20 years, as a lot of this stuff has come to light, uh, a lot of people on the left uh, simply are in denial uh, about it. Uh, you know, I've, one of the, the, the ironic things of the last couple of weeks is uh, now you get people on the right who are sort of in denial about Soviet intelligence operations directed against the United States. Um, the, the Soviet Union and now Russia uh, is no, has never been a uh, particularly good friend of the United States, even when we were allied in World War II. Uh, we were allied for uh, very different reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that people on both the left and the right have to be aware of the fact that Soviet intelligence um, is no friend of the United States and will do what it can to disrupt and destroy our institutions. Speaking to Dr. Harvey Clare, he is the co-author of the book Spies, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America. Uh, What can you you tell us about former KGB officer Vasiliev's uh, career and and what he was able to bring to this book? Well, uh, Alexander is a very interesting fellow. He he, uh, joined the KGB right out of college, uh, and he was trained at the uh, KGB, the Anthropov School, (laughs) Um, 
and he was assigned to the American Department. And um, th this was after the the uh, uh, as the Soviet Union was was in decline, and he became disillusioned and uh, decided he wanted to get out, uh, and he quit um, and walked away and went back to being a journalist. Um, he back in the in the early 90s the the successor to the KGB was broke and they needed money for pensions for their retired officers and they signed a book deal with Crown Publishers to bring out a series of books and uh, they asked Alexander to be the Russian author on, on one of the books so that's how he got access to a lot of this material um, as he was compiling it um, he got threats from old communists who you know, said to him, we're coming back, and when we do, we're going to take care of you. You're, you're collaborating with Americans. You're giving away our secrets. And so he and his family left Russia, and he moved to Great Britain, where he is a citizen now and where he lives. He can't go back to Russia. And uh, he, he feels that Vladimir Putin, I mean, I'm sure this is something that uh, uh, you've talked to him about. It's come up in, in years past. I don't know if you've had a chance to speak to him about the most recent allegations about Putin, but... The, those who think that uh, Putin is is sort of a, a dangerous thug, an autocrat, and is is that where uh, Vasiliev is on, on the issue? Uh, I haven't spoken to him in a while, but but uh, you know he he certainly uh, does not have, I think, any particular love for Putin. Although he still considers himself a Russian patriot, you know, uh, he once said to uh, John Haynes, my co-author, and I, uh, "You think that people like the Rosenbergs are are traitors." Uh, I think they're heroes because they helped my country. Yeah, I suppose from the perspective of Russian intelli or Soviet intelligence, the Rosenbergs uh, accomplished quite a lot. So it, right. it, is, it, is, it is a matter of uh, where, where you sit is where you stand, I suppose, on these things. Uh, one more question for you, Doc. just want to ask you, as we see all this stuff playing out uh, with Russia, do you, do you think now that there will be uh, a a new focus on the KGB going forward, or you think that they'll people just don't want to believe? And I'm sorry, not the KGB, the FSB and Russian intelligence. Uh, or do you think people just don't want to believe that this is something that the average American needs to concern himself with? I think it is something we need to concern ourselves with, and and uh, uh, I think we need to be aware of it. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin, as you put it, is a thug uh, and and a, a kleptocrat and. Uh, I think he's a dangerous man, uh, and he, he does not wish us well. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that, that um, we have to start a, have to have a new Cold War, but we have to be aware of the fact that, that uh, Russia and China and, and other countries um, are going to do what they can to weaken us and to advance their own interests. And they are not necessarily the same as our interests. Dr. Harvey Clare is co-author of the book Spies, the Rise and Fall of the KGB in America, available now. You can go check it out on Amazon or in bookstores near you. Dr. Clare, thank you so much for calling in. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. All right, team, we'll be right back. Beck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton. Welcome back, team. A very uh, nasty, horrific attack in 
Jordan over the weekend. A Canadian uh, woman is among seven people shot dead as gunmen were taking tourists uh, hostage. And this is this is, of course, in the region, nothing new. And, and we're going to continue to expect, unfortunately, that these sorts of, of terrorist incidents are going to happen. Uh, I'm not sure even yet. I'll check and see if there has been any uh, attribution of responsibility for this one. Um, but the gunman went on a shooting spree in the city of uh, uh, Karak in Jordan. And I immediately thought to myself, uh, for, I would assume AQI or, or you know, some sort of AQI affiliate is responsible for this. Uh, but but Karak uh, is, of course, a place that those of you who are... Uh, and by the way, I don't have much more for you on the uh, on the terrorist attack than the fact that you had uh, police freeing 10 people, including foreign tourists. Um, I, b- I believe the, the entire shootout is, is currently over. I'm actually going to check on that uh, right now. Uh, but this was interesting. Yeah, t- I'm sorry. 10 were killed in this uh, terrorist, uh, terrorist attack. Seven officers, a Canadian tourist, and it looks like it has come to a, a conclusion. Um, but... The, yeah, so there's not much more on the attack that I wanted that I wanted to get into because we don't have that much more. Um, but this is a place that, for those of you who have an interest in the history of the Crusades, and I suppose in some strange way, perhaps there is also some symbolism here, at least to the jihadists, um, that Karak was in ancient times a, a, a key strategic location, or really in in the time of the Crusades. So we're talking about you know twelfth uh, century. Uh, is really the the height of this 12th and 13th century uh, that Karak was a key strategic location between the Arabian Peninsula, the Levant, and Egypt, and so there is some symbolism here. Where you have these uh, terrorists who are attacking, well, police as well, but but going after uh, foreign tourists, and they did this in an old Crusader castle. I mean, the Karak is a massive 12th century fortress. Uh, very thick walls. I mean, it's obviously now in, in ruins, but there's still pretty substantial remnants of it left behind. And it, it's perhaps most famous uh, because of the uh, the period it was under the control of uh, Reynald of Châtillon. And those of you who was a, a French crusader of, of the second, he was a knight of the second crusade. If you've seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven, which I think took a very sort of pro-Saladin, anti-Crusader perspective in general. Uh, But if you've seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven, Reynald of Châtillon is played by a gruff, red-bearded Brendan Gleeson, who also, we're going to keep talking about historic, epic movies, in Kingdom of Heaven, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in, in the movie Troy, he played Menelaus, brother to Agamemnon. He's the guy who fights, uh, he fights, Paris, who is uh, now I'm getting into all the actors, who's the guy who plays Legolas in the Lord of the Rings. I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, he's a little Orlando Bloom. Thank you. Sort of a uh, a petite English actor. But anyway, uh, Brendan Gleeson is Menelaus in Troy, and he plays Reynald of Châtillon in Kingdom of Heaven. And uh, Reynald was a pretty, uh, I'm not using the classical parlance here, but he was a pretty bad dude. Um, and uh, the, the fortress... Karak was not necessarily not really as advanced in its uh, architectural designs as a uh, Crac de Chevalier, 
which was another very famous Crusader fortress. I mean, these Crusader castles in what's now the Levant, particularly in, in Jordan and, and, and around uh, Jerusalem and, and into Syria, um, these allowed the Crusades to stretch on much longer than they would have otherwise. I mean, th- these were key locations, especially given the sort of surrounding terrain. Um, if you had had these fortified positions, uh, they were on elevated ground, very thick walls, built to withstand long sieges. Uh, not only could you sort of bring together military force in one location, but of course you could raid and you could go out and, and disrupt the caravans and the trade in the area. And that's exactly what uh, Reynald, when he was in charge of, uh, or when he you know, took, took command in uh, Karak Castle, was doing. So there's there's some historical accuracy in the Kingdom of Heaven movie in, in this regard. Uh, Reynald became a prince of Antioch by marriage, and then he was a raider. He would go out and, and raid caravans. He even uh, raided... Um, uh, he he was, became most famous because he said he was going to invade the island of Cyprus in uh, 1156. And <laughs> the Patriarch of Antioch Patriarch, rather, of Antioch, of which was also a very important city, very important fortress of the time, fortified place, refused to fund this expedition for Reynald, who was a crusader. So <laughs> allegedly, Reynald had him seized, stripped naked, covered in honey, and tied to the roof of a citadel in the burning sun until he relented and agreed to give Reynald the money. Uh, so Reynald then proceeded to invade Cyprus, and he, he pillaged it. So he was a guy, this is what he did. He would go out there and he would uh, find ways to attack the neighboring Muslim caravans and, and to wage a sort of continuous war. So he was hated by, absolutely hated by the, the Muslims in the area, by the Muslim opponents uh, that he had. Um, he also was taken prisoner and was not ransomed for a full 16 years he languished in prison, which for somebody of his level of nobility was considered to be unusual. Usually they would pay money and get you out, but he languished for 16 years. He clearly upset some people. He was also involved in some of the major battles of the time and eventually was part of the, of the crusader defeat at Hattin and then was beheaded by legend um, Saladin himself, as you see in Kingdom of Heaven, the movie, uh, beheaded um, beheaded Reynald of Châtillon. So anyway, when I see Karak coming up in the news for a terrible reason, a terrorist attack there, it just reminds me of uh, Karak Fortress, Karak the Castle. Um, and if you haven't seen Kingdom of Heaven, uh, it's it's worth seeing. It's not great, but it's pretty good. Uh, I'll put that out there. And if I have more for you on this uh, terrorist act, I'll certainly update you on that with a buck brief soon. Team, we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. You know, team, I brought up, uh, what was it, maybe last week, I think, that opposition to Trump is going to become a, a form of, of personal branding. This is going to be something that people do 
um, specifically so that they they can actually benefit their businesses. And, and there's going to be a lot of forget about virtue signaling and social signaling. This is going to be a form of of economic signaling. And uh, this is now going to be a way that people differentiate themselves from the competition in, in a number of ways and on a number of different fronts. And uh, you know this this came up when I talked to you about the Vanity Fair complete takedown of the sort of Trump Grill restaurant, right? And I, I mentioned that look, there's no way there's no way that this is happening because Vanity Fair is uh, just just so just stumbled upon the Trump Grill or whatever it's called, the Trump something Grill, Trump's amazing Grill, Trump's huge Grill. Uh, that, that all of a sudden you have this piece that's being written about a a Donald Trump restaurant in Trump Tower that is essentially a makes it sound like the waiters are are hostages and the food is something you'd get if you were stuck in the Soviet gulag uh except in this case you pay for it it's not even free um it's it's a means of showing how much one hates Trump which now for a lot of people is going to hate value hating all things Trump is going to increasingly be uh, a sort of value signaling, right? Um, and I don't, I don't mean value as in like your personal values, although that's part of it too, but value is as in uh, this is a way to make money, that if you show hatred to what Trump stands for, which is so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, this this guy from New York who's been around for decades and decades, now we are to believe because he's won the presidency uh, now, and the electors did not, in fact, go go through with a coup. Um, now we're told to believe that he is a a racist, a bigot, he's awful, he's evil, and it provides a sort of opportunity for different individuals and businesses to prove how not racist they are, how great they are, how uh, you know cool they are, how evolved they are, and this is going to drive dollars too. I, I mentioned this to you, uh, this just because it really caught my eye, because I thought it was so obvious that you know Trump had this little Twitter exchange after they they trashed one of his restaurants because by trashing the restaurant they're really trashing Trump and what we find out of course is that Vanity Fair broke a record for subscriptions on the same day that president elect Donald Trump blasted the magazine on Twitter and they increased subscribers a reported hundredfold so what was supposed to be this uh scathing restaurant review for Vanity Fair was really an opportunity to tell the kind of people who still read Vanity Fair, which are generally not the kind of people you want to hang out with, I think, uh, to tell them, hey, we're part of the Trump opposition, so support us. You know, this is this is part of our brand. We're the kind of people that will oppose Donald Trump, and so you should buy our stuff. This is now going to be a movement that I think really grows. It's sort of the the anti-Trump uh, the anti-Trump movement, economically speaking, or, or commercially speaking, I should say, the way that people are going to try to drive profits for their businesses uh, is going to rely at some level on uh, bashing Trump. You'll see more and more of this. I mean, there's, there's already this piece out, too, that you got Barack Obama out there Raising a a quote war chest. This is from the uh, the Washington Examiner to quote help Democrats fight back. Stand with me. Work with me. Let's finish what we started. I mean, Obama's out there fundraising, 
And you can expect that to be the case on the political level, right? I mean, I think it's kind of annoying that a former president is already fundraising while in office for the opposition to the soon-to-be president. I think there's something a little uh, a little undignified about that. I really do prefer the Bush approach. You know, when you've been president for eight years, just go do something else. Just go help people. Don't make it about you. Just go help people or just go play golf. Now, Obama has all or, you know, in a couple of weeks, Obama has all the right in the world to play as much. He can play golf every day of his life for the rest of his life. And God bless him if he wants to. Good for him or or do whatever he wants to do. But he shouldn't be. I, I think, and when I say shouldn't, this isn't a matter of law, obviously, and he's allowed to do what he wants in this regard, but I disagree uh, with the position that he should be some sort of opposition figure to the incoming president before he even leaves office. I, I think that this is setting a bad precedent, not to borrow from Trump, but it is unprecedented in a sense. I can't believe he tweeted that out. It is unprecedented, and uh, I, I wish, and it is unprecedented. And I wish Obama wouldn't do it, but at least that's on the political side. But I, I'm just thinking that you should prepare yourself to see much more of the uh, Trump opposition take on the form. And again, before he's even in office, it's going to take on the form of, you know, if you um, want to work in certain businesses, you better not be pro-Trump. And other businesses are going are to openly advocate. I mean, there's one on my on my corner here, not far from me. It's not right in my corner, I shouldn't say that, but it's close by, a few blocks away. And they, throughout the entirety of the general election, had window displays that were just, even even would have sort of profane, um, would have profane things to say about Donald Trump. You know, would have things written out about what a, what a blankety-blank he was or... Uh, and this was the way they were advertising. And I'm sure it was helpful for their business because here in, in my neighborhood in New York City, to be opposed to Trump is to be a refined, civilized, cultivated, good person. To in any way, shape or form accept Trump is to be a Neanderthal, a troglodyte, a, uh, a, a Philistine, a savage, a boar. I'm thinking of all the different ways that you know, Jesuits and some of the uh, educators I had would say that we were misbehaving. They used to call us, one of them used to call us Philistines which I thought was very... I've never heard anybody else ever do that, but he would say, you know, you're acting like a bunch of Philistines. Stop it. Uh, but yeah, you can expect this. So I, I was right about the Vanity Fair things that I'm trying to say. Vanity Fair did... The restaurant review was Vanity Fair signaling to people that are either current subscribers or would-be subscribers, hey, we hate Trump a lot. We'll even we'll even completely trash this... Re- Look, I'm sure the restaurant's kind of crappy, but we'll completely trash this restaurant... And uh, then you should subscribe to our magazine because, you know, that's the way to do it. Um, This works for Vanity Fair. This is going to work for other businesses, too. There will be other businesses that um, to be opposed to Trump is to be a good person. And that's what they're going to want to show you all the time. It's annoying. I I do wish at some level that commerce could operate independently of just the most base partisan politics but that's not the world we live in right now uh, that's not the way it is so we'll have to sort of see if this can how this continues but i'm sure they're going to come up with a a hat that's never going to be as catchy as make america great again but you know it'll be like make america love again or if they probably already have that but you know they're going to have these things they're going to try to commercialize anti-trumpism and this is going to be a way that businesses make money Vanity Fair among them. Yeah. So 
just wanted to point that out. That restaurant review, I said they were doing it to show how much they hated Trump. Yep, that was correct. And oh, by the way, it caused a surge in subscriptions for them. And now they view this as a winning formula. Bash Trump, make money. Bash Trump, get subscribers. Bash Trump, get invited to all the right kind of parties. You know, these are people that I think probably would have gone to some Trump parties back in the day. Vanity Fair, Graydon Carter. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, 888-900-3393 team. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back, team. You know, I, I, I've been saying all along that this notion uh, that the left has that we need to deal with uh, fake news. I know I've mentioned some of the rush, some of what they consider to be not just fake news, but worthy of the attention of major news outlets, uh, the, the, the sort of fake news that's out there uh, that, that people are saying, look at this, this, this may have swayed the election. And I, and I just look at it and I think to myself, why are we? Why is there such a, a a clownishness going on here? There's no way that this weird, you know, Freedom Patriot USA site that has ties to Russia or that has you know Russian language links on it or something did anything in the election. I mean, it's so difficult currently to get your message out on the internet. The notion that the Russians have sort of mastered uh, that they've mastered this and were able to do it in a way. That would change the election. Look, it's one thing to release information that's interesting to people, right? I mean, if you have real, true information, if you've got a scoop, whether you're the FSB or you're the Daily News, if you've got a scoop, you're going to have people interested in what, in what you have to say. And that's sure, that's going to work. But that you could just come up with fake stories that are effective enough that they will go viral, even though they're not based in any truth. Um, that that's not easy to do in a way that matters. It's easy to do that, that a few, you know, a few knuckleheads here or there are going to be like, you know, Oh, really? Is that, is that what happened there? You know, yes. Uh, and, and there will be the occasional moron who believes this stuff so much that he goes into a pizzeria carrying a rifle, um, thinking that he's uncovering a sort of a child, uh, sex trafficking ring or whatever for like the, the pizza gate situation. But this is rare. Uh, this is rare. And, and also, it's it's not as big a problem as they want to make it seem. It's not as big of an issue as they want to pretend it is. So they've also got they've also gotten social media. In this. By the way, I, I never really, I'll be honest with you, I, I never was really somebody who believed in uh, the idea that we should uh, we should think that Facebook and these other platforms are nonpartisan, that they don't have, you know, a point of view that they pursue. And, you know, I, I've never been somebody who thought that that was accurate. Uh, I, I've always thought that there were probably in the algorithm, or at least in recent years, there are probably ways that the algorithm was favoring certainly established news over more insurgent news. And that means right wing stuff a lot of the time. Right. I mean, what, what, what's going to pop up higher usually on on a, on a Facebook algorithm? Is it going to be, you know, Drudge Report or is it going to be the New York Times? Is it going to be 
uh, yeah, Breitbart.com or The Blaze, or is it going to be, uh, you know, The Washington Post, CNN.com? You, you get what I'm saying. Uh, and that Facebook has now created a a sort of a plug-in. I mean, I, this stuff is just, they're just begging for people like me to tear this apart. Facebook has created a plug-in where you're going to have liberal fact-checkers. Um, I mean, and they don't think of themselves as liberal, but of course they are. And the Wall Street Journal has written on this. Facebook's fake fix for fake news is the title of the piece. Here's, here's what they write. Some progressives will do anything to avoid confronting the reality uh, of why Hillary Clinton lost the election. And one diversion is a complaint about fake news, which is provoking even worse responses. Facebook announced uh, this week that the social media platform will weed out some stories and the company will deputize fact checkers to decide if an article is credible. What could go wrong? Facebook says it is testing technology so that a story shared on its site that is flagged by users, among unknown other indicators, will be checked out by the Associated Press, ABC News, PolitiFact, or others. If these high priests declare a story fake, it will be denoted as, quote, disputed by third-party fact checkers and demoted in a news feed. Uh, They also note in this piece that there is zero evidence that invented events uh, in an article that said the Pope endorsed Donald Trump, for example, swayed the election, and more than 80% of Americans told Pew Research in a recent poll they can spot fake news, and only a third report seeing it very often. This is all going on despite the fact that Hillary Clinton recently calling it an epidemic that can cost people their lives. I mean, they're just exaggerating the crap out of this because they want it to all be part of the narrative that there are these insidious dishonest foreign forces that cost Hillary the election still will not accept the much more obvious reality that Hillary Clinton was a really weak candidate, that Hillary Clinton was not somebody that the Democratic Party and the entirety of the Democratic machinery, as we saw from the emails released by Russia or by WikiLeaks using, you know, as a front for Russia or whatever, Um, that the whole DNC was pushing for Hillary from the get-go, that she was the only option they thought they really had, and that that she wasn't able to get it done with all of that political muscle behind her, I I do think has, at some level, um, made the Democrats really have a sort of, oh gosh, you know, what are we going to do moment? Because if they couldn't just sort of carry Hillary over the line, uh, how, what makes them think the next time around is going to be all that different? You know, they've gotten used to having Barack Obama, who, despite my deep uh, misgivings and, and dislike of his policies, is a charismatic politician with a story that, while in some way, I'm some ways very much, I wouldn't say fabricated, but sort of pulled together a narrative that certainly had a lot of people helping to construct it. It was a powerful narrative, but Hillary didn't have that. Anyway, back to the fake news thing. <laughs> the notion that now my Facebook feed, I'm going to see third-party fact-checkers dispute this. I mean, and, I, and I know they sort of do this on Wikipedia, too, and people are going to point to that, but uh, they better be, you know, people are going to really pay attention to these fact-checkers now because all it's going to take is a few that seem really partisan, and we're going to say, okay, so it's what we thought, right? This is a partisan exercise, just like much of the media is anyway, and this whole, oh, it's just the facts, just the facts nonsense is to make the Democrats feel better about themselves. It's to pat them on the head and give them some warm milk so they're not quite as sad that Hillary lost the election. Oh, no. 
Uh, anyway, team, uh, that's it for me today in the Freedom Hunt. Thank you, as always, for joining. Please download the podcast, share it with some friends. I'll be back with you live tomorrow and every day this week. As always, no matter what, Shield Time. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.